Good morning, church. (laughs) Big reveal. (laughs) It's good to be here with you all this morning and to uh, wrap up our sermon series, One Day. Uh, This morning, I get the pleasure of bringing you a passage and a message this morning on a passage that uh, one day, about seven years ago, uh, wrecked my life in probably the best possible way, but wrecked my life nonetheless. And uh, it's a message and a passage that uh, it's really, really convicting. And it's also a passage that has elements that can heal us. And if we'll hang on long enough, it's a passage that can provide us hope for a way forward as well. And so uh, hang in there. If you weren't prepared for a roller coaster ride, that's where we're going today. So strap in, like they say on the Storm Runner, now get ready, here we go, right? (laughs) But we continue this series uh, this morning with a reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 5. And if you're familiar at all with the book of Matthew, and specifically chapter 5, you know that it is titled The Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is depicted in all sorts of Christian art and children's Bibles as the most calm and serene experience ever. There's children playing at Jesus' feet. None of them are pulling each other's hair or grabbing Jesus' leg, right? All of the people are laying and reclining on what I can only imagine are rocks made by Lazy Boy, right? Uh, It just looks so, so perfect. And maybe it did. We don't know. We don't know what it looked like. But one of the things we do know is the anticipation with which the people would be waiting to hear from Jesus. And so this morning, let's start by painting a picture of that anticipation. And to do so, I feel like the best example that we can use is one that we can also quickly misconstrue. And we can mistake Jesus for somebody who we never should, and that is a politician. And so by all means, we need to see this as an artistic image and not as a license to say that Jesus is a Democrat or a Republican. And definitely not that a president or a candidate could do something that only Jesus can do in our lives. But dream with me for a moment that there's a candidate who unites the whole country around a way forward. So right now we're already talking way outside of American politics. Uh, <laughs> but you vote for this person, you support this person, and they, be, they are elected, and it comes time for the inauguration of this candidate. And so you get ready, you go, and they're sworn in, and they step to the mic for their inaugural address. And I can almost see that picture in my mind. I can see the grandfathers reaching over the family to high-five their grandsons, saying, yes, we made it, we're here, we're, we're going to get to hear what he has to say. I can, hear the, or I can see the moms holding their children tight in each arm as they're grinning from ear to ear, waiting for the words of this candidate. And I can see the dads doing that weird thing they do with a, well, I don't know if they do it anymore, but they used to do it with a VHS recorder where they're recording, but then they're talking over it like, all right, son, I know you're only two months old, but one day you're going to get to see what I see, right? I don't know why we do that, but uh, (laughs) with all of that, the the newly sworn in candidate begins to speak. Hold that feeling. Hold that anticipation, the hope that is provided in that. And now let's talk for a second about uh, Jewish messianic hope. Hope for the Messiah that would one day come. The picture that we painted this morning is close to what the buzz in the air would be for the people waiting on that Messiah, but they have their broken reasons for it as well as we do. Their hope was centered on a warrior king who would one day 
join them and, and overthrow their, their captor Rome. And this Messiah would cleanse the temple, he would get their land back, and he and his kingdom and his reign would be eternal. A person would be strong, would be a warrior, a charismatic person, somebody who can take all the weight of the multi-generational hurt, put it on their back, and just fight back for the people. And the Jesus who we love, the Jesus who we profess faith and salvation in, steps to the mic, and he says these words in Matthew 5. These are verses 1 through 12. You heard a nice musical rendition of it just a second ago. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up to the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples were gathered around him and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they prosecuted, or they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I have a tough time with a passage like this. I have a tough time thinking that this Jesus did anything other than take the wind out of the sails of everybody who was there waiting with that messianic hope. I can envision the dad doing that weird camera thing. He shuts it off about halfway through. I picture the mom who's grinning ear to ear in one moment, in the next her eyebrows are raised in disbelief. I picture the grandfather muttering under his breath, I thought it was this guy, but we got it wrong. I imagine people left early. I imagine that some people maybe felt validated, but that a lot of people felt betrayed. But time and time again, the Jesus who we love and profess faith in and we want to box up so nicely in a little box simply just steps outside the box we place around him, asks us to die to ourselves and our own wants and needs and desires and to pick up our cross and follow him. And if we'll hear these words this morning, and we'll not just keep them at arm's length, it's really, really easy to do with the Beatitudes. They sound pretty. It's really easy to keep them at arm's length. But if we'll allow them to do some work in our life, maybe we might see a world in which the things of God stated in this passage actually become a way that feels natural for us. Or as two prominent Christian writers say, what if Jesus really meant what he said here? As I've read and reflected on this passage in the context of the current uh, world that we live in, I think it's safe to say that we've strayed from the principles of Christ and we've picked up something cheap in their place. It's a danger that befalls us all. It befalls myself, the church worldwide. That if we're not careful, we can quickly find ourselves ending up in a place that is far from a life that strives for the things and the standards that Jesus puts before us here in this passage. 
There's a rule in aviation. It's called the one in 60 rule. And some of you are like, you researched your Sully sermon way too much because you're using another aviation (laughs) analogy. But the one in 60 rule says this, that if you take off uh, in an airplane for your destination and you're just one degree off, one degree off from that airport, if for every 60 miles that you fly, you will be one mile off course. And so practically what that looks like is if you take off from Philly and head to New York City, by the time you would be preparing to land in LaGuardia and you're one degree off course, you would be a mile and a quarter out of, off of the center. But if you take off from Philly and you go to Rome, judging by my youth pastor math, uh, <laughs> which is a calculator, <laughs> you would be about 73 miles off course, give or take. And so hopefully you can see where I'm going with this analogy and with this passage this morning. This sermon isn't a sermon for the world out there. This sermon is a sermon for the church in the world. This is for the people who profess faith and commitment to a life in line with the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. That if we're not careful, if we're not centered on Christ and on the principles of God, that even the slightest miscalculations can be devastating in our churches if we head in that direction long enough. And as I look at this list that is presented to the early followers of Jesus here in Matthew, I'm actually saddened because it doesn't feel like we're off by just one degree. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and we fight over whether it's our job to love and care for them or not. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, and we're so uncomfortable with any emotion other than happiness that we ask others to cheer up. Our churches can tend to sometimes be places where the only way that we know we're living this life well is that we're happy. Blessed are the meek, and we parade around with pride and arrogance as winners in this eternal story. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we've placed righteousness far behind happiness, safety, security, and stability in our lives. Blessed are the merciful, and in the face of mercy, time and time again, we've sought retribution. Blessed are the pure in heart, and often our intentions are for personal gain at the expense of others. Blessed are the peacemakers, and we seem to be a people who crave war. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, and we hold back from doing what is right for fear of what others will perceive us as. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus says rejoice and be glad. And meanwhile, we've allowed it to make us a bitter people, a people who mirror the world's assaults and throw them right back in their face instead of welcoming them. Now this morning, I'm not pointing at any specific person. I can see these things in my own life as well. I'm not pointing specifically at New Hanover, but rather the church in general, the church in America, the church worldwide, whatever you want to look at it as. But it feels like we have placed our trust in something other than the Jesus who calls us to live as people who are fundamentally different in this world. 
Now, we don't have time to dig into too many of these uh, things this morning, but I'd like to make mention of two, of a couple big themes that I think would be helpful for us to reflect on as a Christian community that makes up part of this whole church. And if we can do it right here, maybe we can do it right everywhere. And the first is, over time, it feels like we've just begun to get tired as the church, that we begin to get worn down by an alternative message that comes from outside, that it wears us down to the point where instead of having the internal strength that Jesus calls us to have, we say things more like, well, when people start to care about me, then I'll start to care about the poor. Or we'll say things like, I've tried being meek and I've tried being humble and it's been thrown in my face and so I'm gonna be about me and I'm gonna be about mine and nobody else. Mercy wasn't given to me in my greatest time of need, so why should I be expected to give it to somebody else? And there will always be war, so peacemaking seems like an ideal that we can't ever attain. It's not worth it. But Christ doesn't ask us and doesn't say here in this passage that we act well when others do. Instead, he says, in the face of a world that acts outside of these principles, be the people that I've called you to be. Does it require patience? Absolutely. Does it require that internal strength and fortitude that only Jesus can provide us? Yes. Can we expect the world outside to live by these standards? No. In fact, Jesus says, rejoice when people don't get it. Rejoice when people say, why did you act out of love instead of out of anger? Because it means you're doing it right. It means that you've figured it out and that you're following in his footsteps. We're fighting with the world in places where we're just called to fundamentally be something different. It's time we get back to being centered on Jesus and on his teachings. We're called to that and not to getting caught up in the mud that so easily gums up the wheels of this world. And second is this. I think that we've actually begun to think this won't work. Like the actual way of Jesus. The way that he lived and modeled. The way that he taught his disciples to live. The way in which he calls each and every one of us to live. And the way he calls our churches to behave in the world. It seems counterintuitive to what we think will work to spread the gospel. To call a world back to God. To which I say, is Jesus truly our Lord? Because to submit our lives to Jesus and to claim allegiance to him means that we begin to practice the way of Christ. It means that no matter how much it looks like it doesn't make sense, our call is to become disciples, learners, students, apprentices of Jesus. To be so focused on becoming like him that everything else pales in comparison. That the things of Jesus become the way of our lives as well. As I was thinking about this, I'm reminded of the movie The Karate Kid. Now, I'm not a karate kid connoisseur or whatever. <laughs> I haven't seen two, three, four. I haven't, I've seen the, the Jaden Smith remake, but I'm talking about the original here. And there's a scene in the movie that I think is, is really powerful for this point, and it's um, where Daniel comes to Mr. Miyagi, and he's just fed up with him. 
He's like hurling expletives at him, and in between all of that, he's like, all you've done is got me to fix all of your fences and to wax and to sand and all of these things, and you've just basically made me your slave, and here I was thinking I was getting some uh, practical experience. And Daniel gets so fed up, he walks away. And Mr. Miyagi calls him back, and in one of the greatest scenes on film, he begins to show him how this unorthodox training style has set him up to be somebody who can really compete in the tournament he's about to take part in, right? We all know that scene, show me sand the floor, show me wax on, wax off, show me paint the fence up and down and side to side. And that's the main storyline, and it ends up being awesome, and I mean, hey, sorry, I just kind of spoiled most of the movie for you, but it is what it is. Don't tell me you were going to go home and watch it right after this. That's, you've had many a year to do that. <laughs> and that's the main storyline, but there's something going on behind the scenes as well, and it's this battle of leadership styles, right? Cobra Kai, intimidate, be aggressive, no mercy, fight to the bitter end. And Mr. Miyagi's style of peace and internal strength and control and eventually forgiveness. And it all comes crashing together in a final scene between Mr. Miyagi and Kreese. And Mr. Miyagi makes Kreese look like a fool. And he has a moment where he could do some serious damage to him. And instead he just honks his nose and walks away. <laughs> right? And Daniel says as, he's, as they're walking away, he says, you could have killed him. Why didn't you? And Mr. Miyagi responds, a person with no forgiveness in their heart is living a worse punishment than death. A life that is truly formed by Jesus is a life that can hold to the teachings of the great master when they're put to the test. Our churches have been tested, and at times we've cracked. I've been tested, and at times I've cracked. But, once again, I think it's just time that we recenter ourselves on the person of Christ and on his teachings. To become students of this eternal path, this path that people have walked for 2,000 plus years. And that leads us to the hope. We have to find the hope in these stories, right? Now, uh, uh, <clears throat> I guess we better do that here because we don't hold ourselves accountable without looking forward with hope because that's a faith if you don't have hope, that's a faith that you will just throw away at some point in your life. But where I find hope in this is actually in the whole story of Scripture and in the, in the whole story of the Christian faith. Because after spending just one evening eating a meal with Jesus, Zacchaeus has a change of heart and he gives back everything he ever took from people and plus some. All the people who were already struggling and he just made more poor. He gives back to those people and changes his life. One day, the disciple Thomas is wrecked with doubts and reservations about whether Jesus truly rose from the dead. And the next day, he encounters Jesus after his resurrection, and he takes the gospel all the way to India. One day, Paul goes from literally being on a road headed towards a place where he can kill Christians He's knocked off his high horse by Jesus, quite literally. And he has a change of heart, and meekness and humility start to take over, and he opens the Christian faith to the Gentiles. 
One day, Jim Elliott and the other missionaries with him, because of their faith, they choose a commitment to peace instead of comfort and safety when God calls them to the Aka people of Ecuador. And because of their commitment to peace, they're killed by those people. But it opens the door for the people who come after those missionaries to share the message of Jesus with them and transform a whole village in a way that violence never would have been able to do. Friends, the work of spiritual refinement in our lives and in our churches is nothing new. The story of Scripture in the church over is the story of us losing our focus on Christ and finding ourselves off by mere degrees but headed in the wrong direction. But it's also only one day, one day away from being a healthy reflection of what the kingdom of God looks like. Thankfully, we're not an airline pilot. Thankfully, we don't have a gas tank that will run out if we find ourselves too far off course. We can always recenter our lives on Christ and his teachings. We can always start to take steps to right our course. He is constantly moving towards us and calling us back to himself and asking us to follow him. And so my question now is, uh, what will they say of New Hanover one day? What will they say of the people who gathered on the church, at the church on Swamp Pike, other than that they're resilient because of all the construction work that happens out in front? <laughs> but will they see us as a people who are relentlessly focused on Christ at the cost of our reputation? Will they see us as people who sought peace in the midst of turmoil? Will we be a people remembered for our love of those in the deepest moments of their mourning? Will we be called a people of mercy? My prayer is that we will, and my prayer is that that's what people will see. But more importantly, my prayer is that that will change in our lives, in our church. Because if it can change in our church, it can change in the church down the street. It can change in the church in Pennsylvania. It can change in the church in America. It can change in the church worldwide. And if we can do that, I believe that we will look more and more like the one who calls us into new eternal life. And so I'll end with this scripture from the Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 12. I think he sums it up really, really nicely. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, what do you do when the world is watching you? He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. You've got to remember that off by a degree is a mile after a while. We have to stay faithful. We have to persevere. And how do we do so? Paul says, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Let us fix our center on Jesus, move ever closer to him. We take inventory of where we are. We recenter our lives on Christ. We course correct. We move towards him with a newfound endurance. Today as we wrap up this sermon and every day for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your word which can challenge us, your word that can patch our wounds and then can help us to move forward with hope. 
We thank you for your son and for his teachings. And Lord, now we just ask that you would help us as we work to recommit ourselves and our church to you. We thank you for your son, for the work he did on the cross, and for the life that he calls us to live now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, we wrap up this sermon series this week. Next week, we have a special guest with us. I'm not going to spoil it. You'll just have to come next week and figure out who it is. Uh, Would you stand with me as we get ready to close out with our final song, if you're able? And as you do so, would you know that the grace of God and the peace of Christ that passes all understanding now and always go with you ever forward until we meet again. Amen.